Hey everyone, I'm Ray Belli, and this is Words for Granted, a podcast that looks at how words change over time. If you value the podcast as a free educational resource, you can support the show and get access to past bonus episodes by making a monthly donation at patreon.com slash words for granted. Thanks to Justin for their recent contribution. If Patreon isn't your thing, but you still want to support the show, you can make a one-time donation at paypal.me slash wordsforgranted. Before we begin, I want to acknowledge that this is the second interview episode in a row. I've had a lot of inbound interest in the past couple of months from authors and linguists about coming on to Words for Granted, so I'm going to release a few more of these back-to-back. I know it's a different format than most of you have been used to for the past six years, but I do think these conversations are just as fun and just as enlightening as some of the main episodes. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on them too, either positive or negative. So shoot me an email at wordsforgranted at gmail.com or send me a DM on Twitter at wordsforgranted. Okay, on to today's episode in which I speak with Duncan Madden, about the origins of place names. Duncan, thanks for coming on to the show. Thank you very much for having me, Ray. So you've had a career as a writer, and more specifically as a travel writer. So tell us a little bit about, you know, how that has impacted your interest in place names as it relates to your latest book. I mean, I've always had, even before I started uh, my career as a as a writer and a travel writer, I've always had a, a love and an interest of language. It was uh, drilled into me in my early youth. I had one of those mothers who was, uh, if I had something to look up, if I needed to understand a word, she would make me look it up in the dictionary on the kind of idea that I would always remember it. And uh, I think that gave me an intrinsic interest in, uh, in, in words and the meanings of words, even if I didn't particularly realize it at the time. And then, yes, over the years, as I started to travel a bit more and uh, pursued my kind of love of writing, got into journalism, and then from there went freelance and started doing a lot more travel writing. Um, the idea of just visiting all these place names, the more places I went to, the more interesting the names got. And hence the new book, right? Um, tell us about Found in Translation, the unexpected origins of place names. I was approached by a publishing house, big publishing house in the UK, who'd read some of my writing and had picked up on the idea of the etymology of place names through some articles I'd written and thought it would be um, it would make a, a fascinating subject for a book somewhere between a, a deep kind of linguistic reference book, but also a travel log and something a bit more telling the stories and the kind of the fantasies and a lot of the folk etymologies of, of these countries. And we conspired to, to kind of come up with a with a plan and an outline for the book i wanted to take something that i think a lot of people are interested in but find intimidating and impenetrable and make it something that was actually a bit more digestible a bit more fun and interesting to read something you could pick up and put down and that wasn't hundreds of pages of deep deep deeply complex you know tracking of of different um, languages throughout history but rather told the stories of the countries the histories the the adventures the colonization the migrations of all these peoples and how the names of these countries grew from these often unbelievable stories that you think 
couldn't even be written by Hollywood. Some of these stories, they're hilarious, and and uh, and the more I dove into it, yeah, the the, the more the more I realised they were just every country, almost every country has a pretty amazing story behind its name. Be that you know a modern name recently created or one that's that's come from deep in a, in the annals of history. So that's what the book is. It's a, it's a, a tour around the world, seventy or so countries, and the story of each, both the, the countries' names, um, their endonyms and their exonyms. So the names as given to them by the, the, the native speakers of the country and the names given to them by uh, the visitors, the foreigners, other, other language names. Primarily English language, obviously. Well, fantastic. Uh, so let's dig deeper into some of these place names and some of the broader ideas that you talk about in the book. So, uh, yeah, let's, let's start broad. In the intro, you give us four kind of main categories into which place names typically fall in terms of how places actually get named, the sort of, uh, the sort of methods by which naming happens. So let's take these one by one. Uh, what's the first category, if you will? Uh, well, let's go with a, a very obvious one, which is land features. And I guess I should say the order is arbitrary, right? Any of these could have been number one. Yeah, definitely. Any of them could have been number one. Absolutely, yes. Um, uh, and some are more popular than others, obviously, as well. But land features is, is definitely an extremely common one, um, especially the older names. I think um, a, a lot of the countries, um, the indigenous populations and, and indeed the, the, you know, the, the, the people visiting for the first time took the, the kind of the huge major landmarks of a lot of countries as the, as the kind of the thing to name them after. So uh, lots of rivers um, uh, and lots of mountains. So Haiti is a good example in the Caribbean. Um, which was named by the the Taino people um, who uh, who had migrated from the from South America, descended from the Arawaks of South America. Um, they uh, landed on the island of Hispaniola and named it uh, the Land of High Mountains, which in the Taino language of the time was the word Haiti, H-A-Y-T-I. And so that's how we end up with the, the Haiti of today. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's sort of like you said, the most fundamental and obvious way of naming a place. Um, especially for indigenous populations. Like, you are here in this place, you identify what else is here, you call it by that name, and you're, you know, you're probably not trying to deliberately name the place in some sort of uh, official way, you're just describing it for what it is, you know. Uh, oh, I'm here, the place with the rivers. Uh, I'm in the place with the mountains, the place with the tall trees, uh, the place with no trees, whatever it might be. Absolutely, yes. I think further ago into history, obviously, a lot of um, indigenous peoples around the world, they kind of almost deified a lot of the great um, the great uh, landmarks of their countries, the mountains or the rivers. You know, the river was a source of life. It was a source of all life for them, you know, water and washing and food, etc. And so they became extremely important in their in their lives. Um, and often when explorers would, would arrive on the, uh, the, the countries and first greet the indigenous people, a lot of the names were taken from the words that those indigenous people used as they pointed at the things in their lands. So um, that's, uh, that's often how they, how they came to be. And then they've been taken, appropriated, and over time bent and uh, changed with the whimsies of, of, of time over until you end up with the names we have today. Okay, what's the next category of naming that place names fall into? 
As we're, as we're, we're talking about land stuff, uh, I would say that with another one that's, um, that's widely accepted is um, locational or directional features of, uh, of places, so where they are based. Probably the most famous example of this would be Japan, which I think most people have heard it associated as the land of the rising sun. So that's actually um, likely a reference to Japan's location east of China. So the name originated in China, and the name means looking to the east, as the Chinese were towards Japan, that that is where the, the sun rose from each morning. And so Japan became the land of the rising sun. It made its way into the English language um, via Marco Polo, actually, who'd never even been to Japan. He was in China and heard Chinese people at the time talking about Nihon, which is the, um, another word for Japan, the endonym for Japan. And uh, he heard it pronounced as something like Drupan, uh, J-R-R-R-R-P-A-N. Um, and so you know, it's kind of direct transliteration of that, wrote it down as something along the lines of Japan, and that's where Japan comes from today. But Japan means, yes, land of the rising sun, named for its location to the east of China. Yeah, so here you have an endonym, a Chinese endonym for Japan that then passes into uh, the, the mouth of an Italian, and then that Italianization then spreads out to other, you know, European languages, and then they adapt it in their uh, sort of own uh, phonology. Yes, and that and that becoming an exonym through the the kind of mistranslation or the misunderstanding or the mispronunciation or the misinterpretation, if you like. And and you know, this is probably an important point, and I'm sure you've discussed this just in in the realms of etymology before on on your sh on your podcast on your show. But um, there is a lot of uh, piecing together of information and um, bits of information here so you know it's not guaranteed that all of these things etymology is a, a a kind of a wide-ranging subject that that takes leaps of faith and it takes interpretations and it takes connections and and kind of educated guesswork a lot of the time so it's not set in stone but that it's a fairly strong there are lots of linguistic indicators through the through over time that show that that's where japan comes from so but it's not uh it's not set in stone let's put it like that Sure. Um, okay, next on our list of categories? Okay, so the third one would be um, countries who are named for their inhabitants, um, so that for the, the people who live there, um, usually the indigenous people who live there. Um, uh, this is particularly commonplace in Europe, um, thanks primarily to the proliferation of, um, of the Germanic tribes through the kind of the, the crossroads of Central Europe who spread out in every direction and settled in different parts of the world and took with them their different tribe names, um, and those tribes went on to become the, the, the country names. So England for example, is named for the Angles, um, who were a tribe that came over from the mainland. France is named for the Franks. Um, Italy for the uh, Vitali tribe, who were not Germanic, but um, still named after the tribe. So lots of countries named after their in, uh, in inhabitants. But Germany is actually an interesting one because... Um, Germany has uh, more different exonyms for itself than any other country because of all these different tribes that were based in, in the area that, that Germany is now demarked as by its borders. So if you go to um, Spain or France, Germany will be called Alemania or Alemania. If you go to Finland, Germany is uh, Zaxa. Um, in Danish, it's uh, Tiskland. And yet in German, it's obviously Deutschland. So you have all these different names for the country based on the inhabitants of that country. And I'll, I'll jump in here to add uh, more specifically that these different tribe-derived names for Germany are determined based on the proximity of neighboring nations or regions to those tribes. Like 
for example, France and Spain, those countries were closest to the once home of the Alemanni tribe, hence their word for Germany, Aleman or Alemania, whatever. Uh, Finland was close to the home of the Saxons, hence their word uh, for Germany, Saxon or whatever exactly it is. I'm, I'm not exactly sure, but it's it's Saxon derived. Yeah, exactly. So uh, Germany is, has, is, is very, very unique um, uh, in that regard. I mean, Germany has some amazing other exonyms from around the world. Um, there are several Native American tribes um, who have different names for Germany based on their first encounters with them, um, often during the, the, the First and Second World War, Second World War specifically. The names of which I'm not even going to begin to pronounce or tell you, but uh, things like um, the land of men with pointed hats and things like that for the, for the helmets the Germans wore during the war and things like that. So, uh, yeah, lots and lots of different variants, but the, the inhabitants of the country is definitely a very, very popular, a very, very popular theme. It's also worth noting that some countries are named... Um, but because of their inhabitants, but in a slightly different way. So um, especially in Africa, um, the, the exonyms for the countries, the names given to those by people outside were often based on um, explorers or the visitors or the, or the, the colonial um, powers on their impressions of the people they met. So uh, especially in Africa, we have several countries with Guinea in the name, uh, Guinea, Guinea-Bissau, Equatorial Guinea. And, and Guinea is a word that can be traced back through um, several different languages, but back to the Berber Tuareg language and the word uh, Ginawan, um, uh, again, excuse my pronunciation, um, and that means something like uh, of the burnt face. And this is, uh, this is um, Portuguese sailors turning up on the, on the west coast of Africa, um, having never seen dark-skinned people before, and this being enough of a, of a marker for them to use that as a name for the whole land. So the land becomes Guinea based on the idea that this is where people of the burnt face or dark-skinned people live. Yeah, and we all know how history uh, has unfolded. Uh, I imagine that a name like that comes with some pejorative connotations as well. Even if there was no pejorative sense at the time, obviously it was pejorative because colonialism became the slave trade, etc., etc. But yes, there's no doubt that there are lots of pejorative implications, um, uh, and this is a you know this is a, a continuing theme. I mean place names, country names, city names have changed greatly over time. And often these are at the behest of the people in power, the empires, the kingdoms in power, sometimes to promote their own, you know, their own power, their own importance, their own godliness, but other times to, um, to assert themselves as dominant over the indigenous populations. We would not call a country the, uh, the place of the burnt-faced people today. And obviously, right is so. But once they're they're so embedded in in the, the the histories and the names of these countries that they have just endured, it's as simple as that. Other countries have you know thrown off their names and things, but I'm sure that's something we can talk about a bit later. The last of the four common categories is rather than uh, inhabitants plural, um, it would be um, usually a single person, so someone very famous or someone very influential. There are several um, obvious examples of this around the world, but. The most famous one, the country that you are sitting in at the moment, uh, is the Americas. So the Americas were named for one man, Amerigo Vespucci, which is amazing because he wasn't even the first uh, first uh, European to arrive on the shores. Indeed, I believe that he hadn't even visited the country um, before it was uh, before it was named for him. Although I'm not positive about that, but um, he was a uh, he was the first person who was credited with realizing that Columbus hadn't landed in Asia, but had actually landed on a, a whole new continent or 
rather two continents as we now know. So a German cartographer, a guy called uh, Martin Waldseemuller, who was drawing up his, his map of the, of the New World, um, decided that he, would, he posited the name America in honour of uh, Amerigo Vespucci. And that's how it came to be. And eventually it came from one name to represent a continent and now two continents. So named for a, a single man, named by a German after an Italian for the nation of uh, of America, um, and now the continent of America. Um, I mean, it's interesting as well, is it, just as a slight aside on this, is that Waldseemuller chose uh, Amerigo Vespucci's first name. Um, and this is a country, I mean, I live in Germany, by the way, so just uh, some context there, I live in Cologne in Germany. Um, and this is a country that's quite obsessed with the the, the Z and the do, with the formalities. Um, you know, you don't greet a stranger by their first name. And if you have a business relationship with someone, you continue to use their surname in a very um, uh, formal way. Um, and yet, Waldseemuller took Amerigo and used that rather than Vespucci, um, which is interesting. So, yes, if you'd followed the formalities of it, you could well be living in Vespucci land at the moment or something along those lines rather than America. Yeah, Vespucci land doesn't quite uh, roll off the tongue as easily as America does. Um, and, you know, w- what I want to add here is that there is some irony in this category, uh, at least at least in the context of the naming of America, because Amerigo Vespucci is not actually... Uh, a very famous person, at least not today. I think the average American, uh, North American or South American, uh, probably doesn't know who Amerigo Vespucci is, um, especially compared to the fame of, um, of other explorers or conquistadors like Columbus, Magellan, uh, Cabot, whoever else. Um, you know, maybe maybe during uh, Vespucci's own day, the uh, the insight about America being the quote unquote New World was. Uh, significant, but I think Vespucci was like merely a, a, a merchant, right? So yes, he was a merchant. Um, he was a cartographer as well. Um, he was also, um, by all accounts, although obviously again this is an element of his, and is he was also a rapacious self-promoter um, uh, and uh, was not afraid to to, to make himself known. Um, and he wanted a legacy, um, and he got one. So this kind of raises uh, a point that I wanted to discuss, which is, um, how can I say this? Like the the deliberation or lack thereof that goes into naming places. Uh, so so this here, the, the America thing is a great example. Uh, so it comes from basically a cartographer's decision, right? Um, but, you know, his, his, historically, like how many cartographers were there uh, in the 15th, 16th, 17th centuries, uh, who, who, who were just basically slapping names uh, on, onto maps, the, their, their, their own name, uh, the, the, the name conventional to their city or country or region or language. Um, this is all before names of countries are standardized and, and, and ratified. And, you know, at, while these names are emerging, no one necessarily knew which names were going to stick around you know if if the name that you chose or the one you came up with uh is going to be uh the an important one the one that ultimately wins out um so yeah again i guess the question that that i'm getting at is again this this uh deliberation that goes into naming uh naming places and 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 i want to make it clear for audiences if it uh, if it's not already clear that there's no 
uh, or at least historically, there is no magical committee that sits around uh, in the country and then takes a vote and decides, here, we are going to name this place. Uh, that, that happens now in, in modernity, post-20th century, in you know, a world with the UN and, and whatever. Um, but historically, um, place names emerge naturally through social forces, cultural forces, uh, colonial forces, Etc. And it's and it's a sloppy and sometimes even accidental process. So uh, that, that that was a little bit of me uh, stumbling my stumbling my way through my own thoughts. But okay, here here's the question I'm getting at: Is uh, what examples do you have from the book of a place, say, being accidentally named or hap haphazardly named? Sure. I mean, there are there are many. There are some some beauties as well. Um, I mean. Place names aren't random. Um, you know, they are almost always have a, a kind of a definitive source, but there are lots of random factors that influence and shape and, and change them over time, um, which sounds slightly contradictory, but uh, this in simple ways, they, they are always at some time determined. And at some point as well in, in the world we live in now, in the, you know, the UN list of, uh, of country names, um, they have all been ratified and made official at some point, but some are, you know, some are literally, like you said, sat down and, and decided at a table, um, often in the case of, of countries gaining their independence and others are just, they appear random, but they have been, they have just developed over time in a kind of logical and organic way. But then there are others, like you say, that are just classic misunderstandings. I mean, Senegal is one of the, one of the great ones. And again, this is element of folk etymology about this, but it's something that's, that's uh, taken a, a real place in history. Senegal was, uh, was, was named by, uh, by the Portuguese. Uh, when the Portuguese were were exploring West Africa in the 15th century, um, they were they were touring down the west coast of Africa. It's, uh, etymology was posited by a, a French author and priest named uh, David Boylat in the in the mid 19th century, um, and he proposed the notion that um, sometime in the 1440s, prior to all of the European nations coming, the Danish and the English, etc., the um, Portuguese were um, exploring the the coastline of of Africa, and they were looking for the entrance to the to the um, uh, Senegal River, which at the time was kind of known as the the River of Gold, because it was a it was a mouth um, a waterway that led all the way into the the super gold rich empires of, of uh, Mali and Ghana, um, and so it was an important area for them to to explore and to it, it exhibit some control over. Um, so there was a Portuguese uh, prince uh, called Henry the Navigator who um, he found the, the the mouth of this River of Gold um, after an alleged twenty years looking for it, which is mind-blowing in its own right but um uh, uh, he eventually he eventually found this um this entrance and uh, immediately turned and, and sailed upstream um and after a while he happened upon some um some natives fishing from their their canoe or in their language uh, what we would call a, a pirog um, which is like a hollowed out dugout canoe um uh, so Henry the Navigator attempted contact with them, started trying to sport, speak to them, obviously, in, in the Portuguese of the time, um, uh, and asked them the name of the place, um, to which the locals responded, uh, Sunugal, uh, and again, pronunciation, I will just leave it at that. Um, uh, but obviously there was, you know, the, the, the Portuguese uh, the, the Portuguese sailors didn't speak the local dialect, which is uh, known as Volof, um, uh, and the local, the indigenous people didn't speak Portuguese. And so um, the, the Frenchman Boylat proposed that the, the locals misunderstood Henry's question, and instead he assumed what they were fishing in. So they said, oh, we're in Asunugal, and he took that to mean the name of the nation, 
Senegal, which he then transliterated as Senegal. So that's how the name Senegal uh, came to be. Now, this is a slight... There is a folk etymology element to this. It's a long and established story. Um, uh, many linguistic scholars don't don't think it holds much weight. But something curious has happened with that, which is that um, the Senegalese people themselves have embraced it, embraced the notion of Senegal as a boat. And it's a boat that they are all in together. And this has given them a kind of... A, like a, a national identity. They've taken it as a symbol, as a symbol to frame their collective mindset um, and that they're all in the same boat together and that this is what it means to be Senegalese. Um, and they've used this, you know, they've used this in a, in a kind of really powerful way to create a bond which has helped develop and solidify their culture and their identity. And that has helped shape Senegal into one of the, the most politically stable and progressive and successful countries in Africa. In some sense, the, uh, the factuality of the etymology in terms of its cultural significance or uh, the import, its import on the national consciousness doesn't actually matter, right? It, it might matter for linguistic scholars, and, and rightfully so. But uh, in the context here, it's, it's doing something culturally powerful, regardless of its facticity. I think if you ask the average Senegalese person on the street, they'd probably be quite happy with that definition and, and uh, embracing that national identity and are probably happy to skim over some of the linguistic inconsistencies that might exist within it. But, um, but it's again, it's a really lovely story. It's a really evocative story. Um, uh, and, it, and it creates a really um, a strong sense of the culture and identity of the country. And that's why it's endured. That's why the story has endured just as long as the name has, because people like to have it. I can give you an idea of something on the, on, on the flip side of that, if you like, with a, a country not too far away from Senegal, which would be a, a name that was more deliberately chosen. Burkina Faso uh, is, is, a, is a really great example of that, actually. Um, so Burkina Faso has a pretty modern name, again, a country that was colonised and suffered a really, you know, a, a very difficult history under the hands of the colonies. Um, uh, but it became, it took on its current name, Burkina Faso, in, only in 1984. So, you know, you're talking, what's that, 30, 40 years ago, less than 40 years ago. So the name itself was created by one guy, um, a guy called Thomas Sankara, who was a, a Marxist revolutionary um, who hated, hated the French, and he hated the French colonial legacy. Um, he was known as the Che Guevara of Africa. Um, and Sankara came to power, and, uh, and he lived this, he had a very famous legacy behind him. He lived this very reduced life. He, he wasn't wealthy, he didn't flaunt any money, which was definitely different to the time. And he, he was deeply critical of the neo-colonialism um, of everybody from the, the French to also institutions in the modern world, like the IMF, the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank. And so he, he uh, decided um, that he was going to stand up to the French in a big way and he was going to be vocal about it. Um, and when he was president, he told the country's creditors um, that he wouldn't be repaying them with the classic line, we cannot repay the debt because we are not responsible for this debt. On the contrary, others owe us something that no money can pay for, that is to say the debt of blood. And so he refused to accept any foreign aid and he uttered the infamous quote as well, um, he who feeds you controls you. 
So he was really pro-independence, anti-colonialism. And to reflect on this, uh, he decided to give his country a new name, and he was very smart about it indeed. He wanted a name that incorporated and included everybody that, that lived within the boundaries of the country that he had named Burkina Faso. So on the 4th of August 1984, um, he created Burkina Faso. Um, it was two words from two languages, both widely spoken within the country. Um, Burkina comes from the Moray language, um, uh, and Faso comes from the Diula language. Um, Burkino means men of integrity, stand-up men, and, uh, and Faso means the fatherland, or literally in the father's house. Um, so put them together, they kind of create or evoke this meaning of um, the land of honest men, the land of upright men, because he wanted to use the name almost like a marketing tool to kind of show the integrity of the people um, and that they would stand up for themselves, that they would not shy down in the, in the face of colonialism. Um, and then he took it a step further, which was very smart indeed. So he called the, the citizens of the country of Burkina Faso, he called them the Burkina Bay. And this, the Bay suffix, the B-E on the end, um, with the grave accent over the E, this um, comes from a third national language. It's a suffix that's used in a third language within the country, fufude, um, uh, um, and this means men or women. So what he did was by creating this term for the, for the, for the citizens of the country, he incorporated a third language to make more people feel a part and belong to the country, but he also incorporated both genders, men and women, into this. You know, it's not the land of honest men in, in his language, it would be the land of honest men and women. And so he came up with this brilliant name that incorporated multiple languages, incorporated both genders, and it backed up his legacy of the country being independent, upright, and able to stand on its own two feet. Um, and that legacy lives on for him. Unfortunately for Sankara, he had a slightly bad time of it. He continued to, to be very, very vocal against the French and the rest of the world. And uh, in the end, he was assassinated three or four years after he created the name by the guy who... Um, gave him power in the first place. He didn't go on to see the legacy continue, but his name lives on and will no doubt live on for a long time. And uh, yeah, it's one of my favorites because I think it's powerful, inclusive, smart, savvy. Um, and also it's cool, Burkina Faso. I mean, it's a great name. Do you know what the region uh, or country or territory name was uh, prior to this? Yes, before, before it gained independence. So it gained independence uh, in 1960, um, so it still took a long time for them to change their names. But when it took over independence from the French, it was the République de Haute Volta, or the, the Republic of the Upper Volta, the Upper Volta being a river um, that runs through the country. The Volta River is composed of three smaller rivers, which is the Black Volta, the White Volta, and the Red Volta. Um, and they actually conspired to use those colours to make the flag of the country as well. Um, so under French hands, it was the, the Republic of the Upper Volta. All right, so I'm going to shift gears here a little bit. Um, what's striking when you look at a map is that you'll find similar suffixes, uh, such as I-A, I-A, or just A, uh, and then Stan is another one, and there might be some others that I'm... Uh, not thinking of off the top of my head, um, but what what do, what do these uh, particular suffixes mean that we see ia, uh, and stan? The obvious third one, I would say, just to add to ia and stan would be land, which is funny because it's easy to just forget and overlook that. But yes, land is the same. So they, you know, they're a, they're a breadcrumb trail. That, you know, they 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 
show the impact and the legacy of, of cultures and empires, you know, many of which no longer exist um, uh, and the legacy they've left on the world. So IA, the suffix IA, so from Australia to Zambia, you know, many, many, many countries around the world. The IA is a Latin suffix, Latinized, and it means land of. Um, and the stan of which, you know, you see this big grouping of countries with stan as the suffix in the in central and northern Asia um, from Afghanistan to Uzbekistan. The stan means pretty much the same thing. You know, it's a loose interpretation rather than specific, but it means really land of territory of or um, place that you reside in something along those lines. So um, much as land means in England and Finland and uh, you know, New Zealand, um, for example. So they all mean very much the same thing, land of. It's a way, um, a, a linguistic characteristic, if you like, to help identify these words as place names. Uzbekistan is the land of the Uzbeks, uh, Finland the land of the Finns, etc., etc. The, the same linguistic characteristic um, continues not just in country names, but you'll see it in, in city names as well, I mean, um, and, and across different languages. So um, you could look at, uh, in the States, Nashville, for example. Ville is the French word for town. Um, or you have Edinburgh in the UK, um, in Scotland, capital of Scotland. And the, the Berg is, uh, is similar to words like um, Barry and Barra, and it's from the Old English word, which means a, a fortified enclosure. So you will see these characteristics carried through, not just country names, but place names, state names, Pennsylvania, for example, you know, and there you go. It's the same, it's got that same IA um, suffix on the end. So it's, it's not just country names, but in place names in general, it tends to, these, these themes tend to have emerged and stuck over time. Actually, Pennsylvania is a good example of the lasting impact of Latin even long after the fall of the Roman Empire. Obviously, the state of Pennsylvania was not uh, founded during Roman times, uh, but was named in a sort of neoclassical uh, trend that was popular in, uh, uh, it's not America, c c colonial America. Uh, there was this neoclassical flair uh, in, in naming a lot of places during that time. What's interesting about the name England is that it's kind of easy to forget the word land is in England just because of the uh, pronunciation shift of that last vowel, how uh, that A in land has become a schwa, just like a uh sound. It's not England. We say England. I'll give you something slightly, just slightly off the cuff with England. Um, England was obviously the land of the Angles. It was known as Ang Angle Land, and it became right. as as during its it, over time as it as it um, kind of shrunk from from the land of the Angle Angler Land down to England. It went through a phase where it was known as England. And that um, that extra la in the middle is something linguistic professor. They I think they called it haplology which is the kind of the addition of an extra unnecessary bit in the middle of the word. Um, and I love this because obviously haplology has that in it as well. So I think there's quite a meta joke in there somewhere about linguistics, linguists referring to haplology as hapology um, in a nod to their own, their own uh, thing. But yeah, I always liked that about England. The thought that it was England makes me, makes me chuckle. Yeah, well, as, as any longtime listener of this podcast will know, is that um, what we colloquially will refer to as linguistic laziness um, is, very, is very common. If there's a path of least resistance in language, typically we naturally take it uh, over time, whether that's in a century or five centuries. Uh, syllables slur, contractions form, uh, words tend to get shorter over time. 
etc. Well, Duncan, this has been a fantastic and enlightening conversation. Before we wrap, are there any last things that you want to say about the book or any last story from the book that you want to share? Um, and then and then let's close out with where listeners can find you and buy the book, etc. I could tell a kind of slightly abbreviated story of a couple of the more interesting country names and how they came to be. Yeah, that'd be great. That'd be great. Okay, one of my um, one of one of my favourite etymologies. Um, it's complex, but it's a proper matinee afternoon kind of Indiana Jones style story of of, of exploration and daring do and survival in the face of great odds. Is the is the the, the name of Argentina. Um, uh, which is a, a beautiful country, a country I love very much. So Argentina is a, a, next to a river um, which is famously known as the Rio de la Plata, um, the river of silver, which is the, the river that separates it from, from Uruguay to the north. The river took its name uh, from a, a legend that was prolific in, in olden times, um, which is the legend of the Sierra de la Plata, which was a mythical mountain of silver that was located somewhere in the, the South American interior. Um, and this story spread like wildfire throughout Europe through the, you know, the explorers and the settlers and the fortune seekers. Uh, it became a, a really, really popular topic. So in 1516, uh, a navigator and explorer called Juan Diaz de Solis um, led an expedition to the New World, and he was in search of a, a sea passage that would um, connect the Atlantic to the Pacific. This was a, a very mythic quest in the, in the, the kind of um, uh, 15th, 16th centuries. And he, he arrived at the Rio de la Plata um, and thought, OK, maybe this is the entrance that I've been looking for. So he sailed up it in search of the Pacific. But unfortunately, him and his crew ended up being caught and uh, uh, killed by an indigenous group of, uh, they believe, Guarani people or maybe Charua people. Um, unfortunately, there weren't very many witnesses because most of, the, most of them were eaten. Um, but there were a handful of survivors. One of them was a Portuguese conquistador called uh, Alexo Garcia. And he survived and he made it back out of the, the river um, and he got on another boat um, and unfortunately he was uh, sailing up the coast when that boat crashed and uh, and sunk and he survived that as well but he was uh, stuck somewhere around in, in Uruguay um, but whilst he was there waiting and you know living and deciding if he was going to be rescued etc he found this he started to hear all these accounts of this great white king who saw over a land uh, incomparably rich in silver um, and splendor that was somewhere to the west at the foot of the Sierra de la Plata this this kind of mythical mountain of silver and so he became intrigued and and uh, completely obsessed with this and he spent uh, eight years living among the Guarani people the people who had supposedly eaten most of his uh, his um, uh, compatriots on the initial voyage um, uh, and during that time he charted something called the Piaburu um, which is the Guarani's kind of network of trails that covered the the region in the, this this general area Uruguay, um, uh, Argentina, and then further up into Paraguay in Central America, um, uh, South, Central South America. And he spent a lot of time charting these, these routes and gathering together um, uh, an army and the supplies to make an assault on this, go and find this great white king and claim the riches for his own. Um, and he was, he was pretty successful. He, he traveled in with, uh, with some Europeans and many thousand Guarani um, as an army. And he eventually reached the edge of the Inca Empire 
the obviously obviously the source of the silver. Um, he looted a lot. He managed to get in, get a lot of silver, and then get out. And he was sailing back, thinking he was successful, and he'd kind of answered this this mythical quest and had succeeded. Um, when unfortunately, some of the allies that he was with, another tribe called the Paagua, um, ambushed and killed him. Uh, at last, he succumbed. Um, but uh, but a few of the Guarani he was with escaped and made it back out of the country and told the tale of the Sierra de la Plata, the Rio de la Plata, this kind of country of silver. And they emerged with this into Argentina, rich in silver. And so you think, okay, Argentina is the, the land of silver. So that makes complete sense. But the curiosity is, is that Sierra de la Plata is, is Spanish, whereas Argentina is an Italian word. It's Italian for silver. So how come we have an Italian name for a country that was defined by the Spanish name for silver. And that is curious to me. I was very interested in that because I didn't really understand how this could be. And again, it comes back to those Venetian and Genoese navigators and cartographers of the Odyssey, which is much like Amerigo Vespucci, who we talked about with, with America earlier. Um, so they started making their own maps of the area at the time. And because they were Italian, they wrote the maps in their own, own language. So when people were talking about the Sierra de la Plata and the, the Rio de la Plata, they were using the word Argentina. And so their maps became prolific, became everywhere. And so therefore it was the Argentina name that survived and became known as the land of silver, even though the river just to the north of them remained the Rio de la Plata in Spanish. Yeah, and also just that element of, uh, you know, maybe maybe chance puts it too lightly. Maybe that's not the right word. But the, the fact that these Italian maps were the ones that got around. Uh, if history played out differently, if there were... Uh, different political and economic forces at the time, we might have a German name for it or an English name for it or Portuguese or, or whatever. It's just the, the fact that we have an Italian name is totally contingent on uh, what was going on uh, in the world of cartography uh, during that particular time in history, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. There's a, this is what we talked earlier on about, you know, country names aren't random, but there are many random factors that affect and refine and shape them. So, um, yeah. And, uh, Argentina films, it, it feels like an etymology that needs to be made into a movie to me. Okay. Well, Duncan, thank you again for coming on to the show. Uh, before we leave, let listeners know where they can find out more about you and your work, uh, and then where they can order or pre-order the book. If you're here in the States. So you can find me online, uh, Duncan Madden. I think if you Google me, you'll probably see some results because I write a lot of uh, travel journalism online. I have a website, duncanmadden.com, which has my kind of editorial journalistic stuff on there. And that has information about my book um, as well. My book is for sale in the UK at the, the world's greatest travel bookshop, Stanford's uh, in London, going since the 1850s. That's, they've been very kindly um, uh, picked it as their book of the month for December. Um, uh, so you can order it online there. If you're in Europe and the UK, obviously, it's on uh, Amazon as well. And in the US, it will be available on multiple online platforms and hopefully in some of the bigger bookshops as well. But you can find all the details on my website, which is duncanmadden.com. Okay, fantastic. Well, Duncan, thanks again for coming on to the show. Ray, thank you so much for having me. It's been great to talk about. I really appreciate the time. 